This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that People will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. The following podcast contains explicit language. And this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Brio of the Buoy edition. It's Wednesday, January 7th, 2015. On today's show, Mr. Turner is the new film from director Mike Lee about the great English painter J.M.W. Turner. And then Lee Daniels has created a sudsy new hour long for Fox. It's about a music mogul confronting his mortality, and it's called Empire. And finally, after a long, mostly silent sabbatical, the neo-soul singer D'Angelo has a new record, Black Messiah. It's being reckoned as a masterpiece by many critics. We'll ask Slate's own Carl Wilson if he agrees. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy new theme song, too. Yeah, uh, that's what that was pulsing in my solar plexus. And joining us also is uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. All right. Well, before we go any further, Julia, what's our uh, Slate Plus this week? We are going to buttonhole Dana after the show and talk to her about my favorite week at Slate every year, the Slate Movie Club, which Dana has convened. And she's going to give us some highlights of what they're talking about. And then also we'll uh, make our suggestions and nominations for what they should discuss as the conversation wraps up for the rest of the week. All right. Cool. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's tuck in here. Let's move on. Mr. Turner is the latest movie from the English director Mike Lee. He of Naked Secrets and Lies, Topsy Turvy, and many other great movies. Uh, I suppose you'd have to call this movie a kind of biopic of the English painter J.M.W. Turner. I think it's fair to say it's a portrait of the artist as both a genius and very much a this-worldly phenomenon of a temporal, earthy, earthly, guttural, often hypocritical and ugly apparition. It's also fair to say that this particular human beast created an entirely new way of looking at the world and making art, Turner changed the direction of the history of painting by moving it away from genre convention into new realms of technique and feeling. The movie's very much about this. Uh, these stayed relevant in the painting world up until the advent of Andy Warhol. I hope we get to get into all of this. But first, it is a wonderful movie. Let's listen to a clip. Well, before we before we play this clip, we should actually set it up, right? Because it's a little bit anomalous. So Turner is played wonderfully, I think, by Timothy Spall, who just has an incredible face and body and deploys them wonderfully in this role. And in part communicates like extensively through grunts, through like many different differently modulated grunting noises, grunts of ascent, grunts of descent, grunts that are intentionally modulated so you can't tell whether he's ascenting or dissenting, grunts of frustration, grunts of satisfaction. Like, I feel like we should try and do almost like a whole grunting segment. Like, maybe the Slate Plus segment of the show should just be in grunts, and, and we can see if we could be as expressive in our grunts as Spall is in this role. But the scene we're about to play is actually kind of in contrast to that. He's no longer in his studio. He's not grunting at the landscape or grunting at an assistant. He's actually meeting with fellow painters. They've just hung a bunch of their work in salon style in this glorious room for a grand exhibition. And so we hear him in a much more uh, hail fellow, well-met mode, uh, hobnobbing and backslapping with his fellow painters. 
Good morning, Mr. Turner. Morning, Sir Billy Gussie. Good day, Delighted you could join us. Damn fine spectacle this year, Billy. Mm-hmm. Aha! Mm. <laughs> Very fine day to you, Mr. Stoddart! <laughs> Mr. Turner, sir! <laughs> Constable. Turner. Mm. Mm. Jonesy. Carlo. Uh-huh. William. The Hanging Committee. You approve? Did well, Aunt. Grazie. Prego. <laughs> Would everything be to your satisfaction, Mr. Turner? It is indeed, Mr. President. There's a splendid cornucopia. Cornucopia? Good morning, Turner. Good morning to you, Mr. Leslie. Robbie. Good morning, Mr. Turner. My other piece, where is it located? We placed it in the anteroom. The anteroom. <laughs> okay, I remember that as like an incredibly loquacious scene, but in fact, it is also full of grunts. The movie is just like Grunt City. <laughs> but in any event, you get it. Well, you notice the, the grunts come in. They're very meaningful there. The grunts come in when he's introduced to Constable, who was his big painting rival in life, and who you see him trying to sort of outpaint in this one scene. And so the grunts are very strategic. They're showing his lack of, um, of warmth toward Constable. <laughs> well, Dana... Um it has leaked to me through the Chinese wall that usually separates me from knowing your opinions before we speak on Mike that you loved this movie. Is that correct? I loved it. Yep. It's on my top 10 list for the year. And I think it's probably just one of my personal favorite experiences that I had at the cinema this year. And I'd been looking forward to it all year. I mean, just the idea of combining Mike Lee, Timothy Spall, and J.M.W. Turner is, is thrilling in itself. And Topsy Turvy, which was Mike Lee's previous period drama about artists, his Gilbert and Sullivan backstage drama, is is one of my favorite Mike Lee movies, too. When he takes on that kind of a big um, historical landscape, he does it like no one else. I don't know if you guys agree with me, but neither this nor Topsy Turvy feel like historical period dramas to me. They mm-hmm. somehow actually feel as if you've time traveled into the past rather than, I don't know, they just don't feel like, they don't feel like actors playing dress up. Right, rather than t- uh, time traveled into like a 1979 masterpiece theater. I mean, I, I completely agree. You're immersed in what feels like that world. It's wonderful. Uh, talk a little bit about Timothy Spall as an actor and then in this movie. Well, Timothy Spall has worked with Mike Lee forever, right? I think he's had he's had a few major roles over the years in Mike Lee movies. And Mike Lee really kind of brings out the best in him in, in this role. I don't know. What is there to say about Timothy Spall? He's so... I mean, Spall is this big, ungainly man. If you can picture what he looks like, he's sort of this um, this big force of nature with this odd sort of um, Dickensian face or a face that might be, as a lot of faces in this movie's, movie might be, sort of out of a Hogarth drawing or something, an old satirical drawing of, a, of, a, of an Englishman. And uh, and he, he, re- he attacks this role from so many fronts at once. He's got that nonverbal grunting side, right? But he also, at certain moments, shows this incredible refinement and sensitivity. I love this the scene early on where he comes, he's at a big garden party at some sort of patron's house and he's strolling through and he comes across this young woman playing a harpsichord and uh, and she's playing a little a piece from a personal aria and they start to sing it together and then there's this moment that he weeps as he's, as he's, as he's froggily, croakily singing this, this song with her and you get a sense that you know beneath the surface of this man who appears to communicate entirely in grunts and be fairly uninterested in all human intercourse is this aching soul of an artist. So, Julia, this movie depicts the artist, as Dana indicates in a lovely way, depicts the artist as a kind of ultra-human, the man of deepest feeling and expression. It must have bored the shit out of you, no? Steve, you wound me. (laughs) Come on, that's not fair. I loved this movie. I mean, I like all movies about people with the last name Turner, obviously. But, (laughs) I mean, I thought the visuals of this movie were so stunning to me. Like, the... The movie is shot, and and I, I don't know what the... I was curious about the color process of it, like how much of it was color corrected or how much they tried to get it in the initial cinematography. But a lot of the images of landscape end up looking like Turner paintings and the diffuse light and the effects of mist and the way that water, light and water play together and all of the sort of mysteries of landscape that Turner explores in his paintings are explored both in the cinematography of landscape in the movie and then in just the palette of the film and the waterfront houses we're looking at and the exteriors and sets. And it's just a gorgeous experience that to me made sense for the movie because the movie is fundamentally about the act of perception as an act of beauty, I think. And I loved it. I mean, it's, it's an odd, it's almost a disorienting movie. It kind of 
glumps through his life without many orienting points. You're sort of lost in a cloud of interesting moments and little bright spots and dark spots. Uh, and you don't learn that much about the biography of Turner. Right. It's not a signposting biopic where you sort of go from one big moment to the next. It really is about everyday life, not only Turner's, but about everyday life in general. And so some of the glimpses you get of just everyday work, his housemaid played by Dorothy Atkinson, an incredible performance that with also barely any language in it, who is at once his painting assistant and housekeeper, and also at times just the object of his, I don't know what you'd call it, he just takes out his sexual urges on her and essentially has, has sex with her at will. And that relationship is really beautifully established with very few words and is heartbreaking at the end. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, I, it always worries me when a director, a movie director, a film director starts to think in terms of painting because then they make painterly movies and they're a disaster. They're, they're just two very separate media. This didn't happen in this instance because Mike Lee's even though the movie has ravishing painterly moments in it that are quite self-conscious, but not at all in a bad way. But it's just, you know, he's just a, Mike Lee is just an unremitting humanist. And, and that's what he sees in Turner, I think. And, uh, and so he, he, he'll never make a, a static or overly self-referential movie. He lets uh, Timothy Spall, you know, inhabit and create this human being really fully. Um, But the thing that struck me about the sort of historical aspect and art historical aspect of it is just how early Turner comes in the history of art. His earliest work is close to a century before Van Gogh. He's dead 20 years before Monet begins doing anything like Impressionism. He's really an anomalous presence in in the history of art. And what I love about how Lee presents Turner, the painter, is how pointedly his paintings were modern before the world was and so there's a scene in which you he visits a lord who has begun collecting or purchasing his work and not only are the canvases totally unlike the other canvases that surround uh his turner's paintings on the lord's wall but they're totally unlike the world in which they're being displayed that the this, there's a world of of propriety and formality and manners uh in which Turner landscapes and seascapes and skyscapes just have no, they don't yet have a kind of natural place. I mean, I, I understand that, 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 that the romantic movement had happened in, in poetry, but in, in painting, it hadn't really yet. And um, so I thought that that was amazing. And he just came about at this moment where the art world into which things like Impressionism and Post-Impressionism made sense didn't exist yet. I mean, really sort of the gallery world. This is the world of the salon, academic training, formal rules, really more of technique than meaning. And and Turner changed all that. And I was really appreciative to see how. The movie also traces the the moment in his career when he started to move further toward abstraction and his landscape started to resemble less and less an actual seascape or skyscape and the horizons start to disappear and it really does become almost just abstract washes of color. And the movie also traces how he was, you know, became less popular as a painter. He was hugely popular and sold well earlier early, early in his life. But, you know, th- there's even a little music hall skit of um, of some comedians mocking him for his, his new style that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Dana, I think we'd be remiss here if we didn't talk a little bit about the portrait of Ruskin in the movie, who's... So, you know, John Ruskin was the great... He was much younger than Turner. And as Turner's reputation began to wane or become troubled because he was becoming so sort of frankly and brutally expressionistic in ways that the public wasn't ready for. Ruskin, Ruskin's first great work of writing was called, I believe, Modern Painters in, in the 18, late 1840s, just about when uh, Turner dies. And it, explain, it was meant to explain in detail and with an enormous amount of historical context why Turner was a commanding genius in the history of painting. And Ruskin, in some ways, was the first great semi-modern art critic and also one of the great founding critics of architecture. I mean, The Seven Lamps of Architecture is one of the greatest books about architecture ever written. I mean, Ruskin is possibly somewhat ripe for parody as an esthete and as an over, like a, like a almost comically over-refined human being. But that's, I mean, not, but that's like saying, you know, Bob Dylan is ripe for parody for singing in a nasal voice. I mean, it's, it's, of course he was that. That's, that's the position that he stakes out in the history of criticism. But in this movie, he's, he's like a, a fussy little, you twit. know, yeah, twit. And I, I, I don't know, what did that, how did that strike you, Dana? I don't know. I mean, I guess I read that scene in a way, and there's not that much of this in the movie, but I read it as a little bit of an autobiographical bit of score settling 
from Mike Lee, you know, who's who's always been a prickly presence with with critics and is not particularly interested in analysis of his work. I think he was probably identified with Turner in that scene where we see Ruskin fastidiously going on about the marvels and beauties of Turner's work and Timothy Spall just sort of grunting away. Well, and he's really cruel about Ruskin. I mean, he's not only is he self-satisfied and smug and supercilious and overly pleased with his own language. He's also sort of relishing the painting he has convinced his family to purchase for him and that he relishes and enjoys showing off that he owns is the wreck of a slave ship. And he revels in the aesthetic glories of the dying bodies of the slaves in this way that is just utterly awful and callow to the ears of the people listening in the movie and to the ears of the audience and just seems, I mean, you know, like a, a very sharp dig that you have no idea whether it's based in history. I mean, I just felt I didn't, I just didn't read this movie as a biopic at all. Like, I'm not sure you even really need to read it as a movie about the life of this particular painter. It almost seems to like take that moment in history as like a landscape in which to set a human story. And I feel like we're supposed to take Ruskin as a counterpoint of someone who's engaged with position and presentation rather than direct direct absorption of experience. I mean, for all that we're focusing on this one, like, strange, dissonant note in the movie, it's—I really recommend it. And I—the I, mystery and beauty of what it means to live in and look at the world, it's like— rare to have a movie that's about that and it's such a beautiful medium you're right Steve that paintings and movies are very different arts but the sense that that fundamentally when you watch a movie you're subjecting yourself to an experience where you an experience of perception an experience of observation and and just like letting light shine into your eyes and inform you and enrich you it's sort of a perfect marriage and it's just so beautifully done I'm not doing it justice, Dana. Give, send us out with the with the with the pan. Yeah, I think you're getting at something that was that I wanted to say when we were talking about what's special about this movie and about Spall's performance and what sets it apart from artist biopics, which are often such a doomed to stodginess kind of genre. And it's something about the way that this movie refuses to to make the connection between the artist and his art. It allows it to, to have some distance and to remain mysterious. We don't know quite how it is that this, you know, big grunting mountain of a man makes these beautiful things. And we don't get flashbacks to explain why he became a painter. And we don't get, you know, exposition of why he finds a landscape beautiful enough to paint. There's just a lot of looking and seeing and creating. And even the way that Spall handles the paints, you know, it's just so obvious that he's worked in the way that actors work with Mike Lee for a long time researching this character and almost creating it together. That is sort of Lee's working process is that he has a long rehearsal period and people sort of get together and improvise and write together and create this work all as one, maybe a little bit in the way that Robert Altman used to do. And you really see that even in the way that Spall handles the paints. When he paints the canvas, he doesn't look like an actor standing in front of a Turner painting on an easel and pretending to be daubing paint on it. You know, he sort of handles the materials with this workmanlike quality that makes him seem familiar with them. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the movie is Mr. Turner by Mike Lee. It is slow rolling up to a theater near you. Um, no doubt sometime soon. We all agree it is a tremendously compelling. Uh, it's a terrific movie. Go see it and let us know what you think at uh, facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. Empire is the new hour-long on Fox created by Lee Daniels. It stars Terrence Howard as a music mogul facing his own mortality, and therefore the very open question of who among his three sons will inherit his empire. Why don't we listen to a clip? I started selling drugs when I was nine years old. I did it to feed myself. But it was music that played through my mind that kept me alive when I thought I was going to get shot. And it was the lyrics that I dreamt about that kept me warm while I was sleeping in the streets. Music saved my life. You got ALS. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. How long I got? Three years. Most likely less. I want Empire to be here long after I'm gone. I need to start grooming a successor, and it can only be one of you. All right, Julia, let me start with you. Is this material fresh at all, or is it more nighttime suds in the tradition of Dallas and Dynasty? 
Well, to do nighttime suds in the tradition of Dallas and Dynasty, but do them with an entirely black cast is fundamentally fresh. So can the answer be yes? Just yes, it is fresh and it is hackneyed at the same time. And I will say, I I can't say I have a ton of respect for myself for having enjoyed this show because some of it is just so hokey, like the scene where Terrence Howard's Lucius tells his three sons, like, one of you must succeed me and take over the empire. And then one of them's like, what is this, King Leah? And mm-hmm. you're like, okay, okay <laughs> I got it. You got the, you got those Shakespeare ambitions. We're, like, registered. It's goofy. But um, I don't know. It's kind of a fun world to be in, like, the, the notion of, of having a music world soap. I mean, Nashville, I guess, is the other one on TV, and I haven't found time to watch that. But a kind of hip-hop R&B music world Soap sounds great. And Terrence Howard is a great performer. And I think the real standout is Taraji P. Henson as his wife, Cookie, or his ex-wife, Cookie, who in the pilot emerges from prison, having not seen anyone in her family for 17 years, and very quickly worms her way back into both the record company and her family with tensions flying multiple directions. And I kind of like might I don't know. In a world of unlimited time, I would definitely go along for this ride. In the world of actual TV watching time that I have, I'm not sure that I will make time for it. But uh, there's like some fun energy in this show. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dana, Julia, if I can uh, parse through all that, says that it's both fresh and hackneyed or fracknied. She's um, (laughs) invented a new new aesthetic subcategory. Uh, Dana, what do you make of this fracknied stew? Um, You know, well, Lee Daniels, who created this show and who has worked with Terrence Howard and Taraji P. Henson before. He made Hustle and Flow and uh, Impressious. And what is his most recent movie, The Butler? I mean, he's never been known for his, you know, finely tuned, finely handled scamp- scalpel, right? He's much more of a, of a bludgeony kind of, um, you know, he, he, his symbolism comes through loud and clear. And, uh, and most of this is just way too clumsy for me, like the Lear references and this sort of obvious machinations being set up for, um, for future episodes. But there's one reason to keep watching it, and that is Taraji P. Henson is Cookie. It's like she wandered in from a different show. I mean, she could be someone from Orange is the New Black or, you know, a, a show that has like more, more vibrancy and quirkiness and, and individuality than and I think the rest of this this show feels like it has. But the music's pretty good. Timbaland did the music, and it's credible. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it would quite make it onto the pop charts, but it's a credible imitation of music that might. Well, and it's an interesting strategy, right? Because they've had a number of shows that have been successes that have cover songs, right? Like Glee did these very high production, often with star cameo covers of hit songs every week, and they would often skyrocket to the top of the iTunes charts, but they wouldn't get radio play, and thus they wouldn't quite achieve like total music world domination in in the same way that they're hoping, I think, these songs, which will be original songs produced by Timberland, will. And the music, some of it's good. It has a good feel. Like, the music has a good feel. There's the one of the three sons who's basically like a Frank Ocean-type character. He's more sensitive. He's gay. He's more of a producer than in-front-of-the-limelight guy. There's the question of whether he has the talent to be a star and go head-to-head with his brash rap star younger brother is like one of the key tensions in the in the film. But then the song that he sings, you know, there's like a club scene late in the episode where he sings this heartfelt, you know, Dad, why don't you understand me? because I'm gay type anthem. But sadly, the lyrics of the anthem are basically literally like, Dad, why don't you understand me? Because I'm gay. Like, there's no, there's none of the like beauty or inventiveness or um, interestingness of a way that you might conjure a, a beautiful anthem about a rich subject like that. So that one I thought was a real clunker. And then there's a very, very obvious dichotomy set up in the in the pilot between, um, you know, the son that the father is going to champion to be the music star and the son that the mother is going to champion to be the music star, which is the gay son who's been rejected by his dad. So, you know, all of these these sort of sexual ideo- ideologies just split down very, very clear lines. There, you can just you can you can tell that this show is not going to be long on, um, you know, sort of rich richly painted layers. Yeah, but weren't mm-hmm. you kind of looking forward to watching the gay son become a star and pummel that brash <laughs> upstart? And then get pummeled back? I, honestly, I find all three of the sons, just the characters, the performers are fine, but I find all three of the sons sort of wooden and boring. I mean, the person that, that I'm really just jonesing to get back on st- on screen again is Cookie, who is this kind of, you know, this this great character with some contradictions. She's sort of fabulous in her style, but she's also this very sharp businesswoman who knows exactly where she wants to take her son's career and the company. And I don't know, I, I, I love that she supports her gay son, but at the same time, she calls him a sissy behind his back. I mean, she's just, she's a very funny character. 
Mm. Steve, you've been throwing to us in a deflective manner that makes me feel like um, we should press you and ask you what you thought of the show. <laughs> um, I uh, did not connect with the material, but I, well, a couple things. The first is that, well, apropos of the discussion that we had about Mike Lee's filmmaking technique, you know, it's interesting that that's sort of the default, it just has to be by necessity the mode of creating a television show that it develops as it goes, the rapport of the actual human beings thrown together to make it begins to leak when they're successful, begins to leak through on screen. And so pilots are often the least representative, you know, sample of a, of a television show because everyone's a stranger. They've all showed up, you know, and decided to, you know, then kind of thrown these characters on along with the costumes and um, nothing's really very evolved yet. They're often written by the creator of the show who subsequently, uh, show runs the show, but doesn't necessarily write it more, more just sort of CEOs it. So, um, so with all that in mind, like maybe this show gets better. It was amazingly, I thought broad brush kind of clunky network TV, completely uninteresting with, to me with one exception, which is I actually, um, I actually didn't like cookie. I thought cookie was just another ridiculous caricature, but I did really like the drama of the gay son. It seemed to me at that moment, the relationship between these characters suddenly seemed quite real. I mean, his excruciating rejection at the hands of his ex kind of gangsta father, his t- tentatively loving relationship with his rival brother. It seemed to me all of this stuff was really culturally loaded in a meaningful way as opposed to a purely manipulative one. And uh, it was the one story that I had any interest in seeing play out, you know, on an ongoing basis. But because uh, it had real poignancy and suddenly the relationship between these people seemed way less fabricated uh, out of an elevator pitch for a, you know, hip hop King Lear. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think part of why I root for Cookie is because she's associated, you know, she's allied herself with the gay son whose music is less interesting, but whose story is more interesting. I don't know. It sounds like none of us are in love with this. It certainly wasn't a perfect pilot. But I do think it's really rare to see a, you know, mainstream network launch high dollar, high gloss soap that's entirely populated by black actors. And I think this has enough interesting performances and ideas and potential in it that I'm excited to see where it goes. All right. Well, the show is Empire. It's created by Lee Daniels, stars Terrence Howard. It's on Fox. You should check it out and tell us whether you think we're right or wrong about it. All right. Moving on. The neo-soul singer and multi-instrumentalist D. Angelo is out with a new record after an extended hiatus. Carl Wilson is Slate's music critic. Carl, at last, here we have new music that doesn't make me feel like a giant sack of anachronism. Um, But first, why don't we pick a cut to listen to? Uh, Carl, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, pick a song. Pick a song from the record, and let's listen. Well, I'll I'll choose first off my my favorite jam from the record, and kind of the the, the biggest sort of statement of purpose on it is the charade, which is kind of this um, beautiful like prince like statement of purpose and philosophy. It, it's really it's really enrapturing to me. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, so we need you to Carl explain this to us, Carl. I have to say, I, I've just plagiarized that lovely locution from Julia Turner, but it's just too good not to use. Um, am I right in thinking that there's something? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, people are deeply swooning for this record. You're one of them, uh, I assume. But is there something in today's music landscape? Is there something utterly distinctive about the sound, the feel, and the gesture behind this album? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, D'Angelo's always had a kind of a retro to the future kind of aesthetic. You know, way back way back in the 90s, even he was still drawing on a sort of deeper well of soul music than most people in R&B were at the time, and then trying to give it a kind of contemporary feel. And it's even more of a stark contrast with what's been going on in music generally now. You know, the kind of R&B that we've gotten used to in the past few years is either kind of a hard or a soft minimalism, but always minimalism, partly because the tools of digital music making are are sort of tend to push people in that direction. So you're sort of creating beats and finding ways to weave 
a voice in between those things, and you can almost sort of see the sine waves of a, of a of a Pro Tools visualization when you're hearing that music. And this is kind of you know, and not to not to criticize that because it has a real power of its own. But what D'Angelo's bringing is kind of this wake up call to ears that have been used to that kind of hard metallic gruel and and bringing this generous amount of music going on with layers and layers of musicians playing, you know, so, so many that you, that you can't penetrate down, which is partly, you know, maybe a, an effect of a 14 year album gestation, but kind of remarkably doesn't very often. There are maybe moments where it does, but mostly doesn't feel overcooked, mostly doesn't feel oversaturated, but instead kind of calls up all this history of music and, and, and reawakens us to, to what, you know, the traditions of black music and particularly, but not hived off from all other music can mean. And, you know, the album, the album release was moved up reportedly to respond to the Michael Brown and Eric Garner police killing protests across the country. And you can hear it's not, you know, there's touches of politics in the lyrics, but that's not really where it matters. Where it matters is in the idea of sort of black music mattering as, as a culture and, and, that being able to go everywhere and demanding its its due, and that that I think the timing in particular brings all of that to our ears in, in a really remarkable way. Even though the album is kind of hard to penetrate in its completion because there's so much music there. Well, Carl, so labored over records often turn out to be disasters. Uh, you know, Chinese democracy being kind of the punchline. But this isn't the case in this record, though. He is known for vast silences in his career. Right, that taking long sabbaticals is is really distinctive of his record-making M.O. Yeah, I mean, D'Angelo emerged as kind of a young prodigy in the mid-90s with his first album, and then there was and there was a lot of buzz, and then there was a five-year hiatus until Voodoo came out, his kind of masterwork, which really introduced a whole new D'Angelo and obviously was the product of all this kind of woodshedding and, and collaboration with, uh, with, a, with a whole set of neo-soul artists and hip-hop artists known as the Soulquarians at the time, and that became the, the grand statement. You know, the Roots were part of that scene and Erica Badu, and, and Voodoo was kind of the masterwork that came out of that. And then there's this kind of amazingly tragic feeling story about how the, you know, the infamous video for Untitled, which was just a pan across D'Angelo's torso um, and this music playing turned him into this kind of hyper sex symbol. And by all accounts, that kind of produced this meltdown in this kind of sensitive prodigy. And, um, and then 14 years went by with little bubbles of, of music, Come showing up here and there and occasional live performances, but mostly reports of alcohol and drug abuse and then this near fatal car crash in the mid 2000s. So you have this, you have this kind of absence that's that threatened to become permanent, even though this album has been talked about for years and years as something that was in progress. It started to seem like, you know, a, a chimera that this was just never going to happen. And so it, there's definitely this sense of relief and, and jubilation that drops when the album comes out and, and then the question, you know, becomes whether it's possible to hear it objectively after all that buildup. And, you know, with cases like, as you say, Chinese Democracy or the My Bloody Valley, My Bloody Valentine album or um, David Bowie's album last year, you know, all of those things became very difficult to hear in their totality. But the amazing thing with Black Messiah is I think as objectively as we can hear it right now, it, it kind of satisfies all of that waiting. All right, Carl, can you talk to me about Sugar Daddy, which is sort of, if this album has a, a crowd-pleasing single on it, it's probably Sugar Daddy. And um, and that sort of, I think, sounds maybe the most like older D'Angelo music. Tell me if I'm right, that it's it's sort of a, a sweet, funky, baby-making kind of groove that goes back to some of his sex symbol days. She 
Yeah, I mean, and it reaches back to the very beginning, really, of that kind of just joyous kind of music making. And this, and it has this kind of jazz side to it that has always been there, but it's really interestingly retro. It's kind of swingy in the in in a bunch of tracks on this album. And yeah, Sugar Daddy's probably the most. Um, unconflicted <laughs> of the songs on the album in a lot of ways, you know, kind of back to the to a to a nice, sweet kind of come on sound, a little raunchy in places. Yeah, I mean, sonically, this album is so satisfying, and I'm not uh, like I I was not one of the people who was like checking the daily uh, has D'Angelo's album dropped yet single serving site that I don't know if it, whether it actually existed, but presumably it could have. You know, I like some of the tracks, but I've, I'm not a, one of the deep devotees. But I love how rich the sound is. And I feel like your description of the modern music aesthetic, Carl, there's minimalist. And then when I think of lush as a descriptor for modern music, it is almost always paired with anthemic. Like I think there's like the sound of I don't know the the fun guys or there there are certain radio hits right now that have a full sound, but it's like stadiumy, not complex and dense and gnarly in a good way. The way these songs are like they're they're it's big and full, but not necessarily complicated. Whereas the you know even just in that little bit of you know the, the two songs we've heard, Charade and Sugar Daddy, the the complexity of the beats and the different sonic textures that are making those beats and the different amounts of time you wait to hear somebody say or sing something like the denseness of it there's just like more feels like there's more data in each like second of song than there is in stuff that we're used to listening to they're also very long songs with long grooves that don't have any melody entering at all so the, so there's definitely a sense of a sort of like wall of sound there's like five minute songs here which is not i have to say always my thing i'm a little bit of a hook person and sometimes like the rich ambient wall of sound just sort of recedes into nothing for me yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to bring up the sort of anthemic side of current pop with it, because that's definitely something that's almost consciously refused here. You know, here's somebody who's coming back from having been in rehab and all of these things about his life questioned, and he's not coming back with like an affirmative, self-actualizing album, you know, that in that form that we're really used to in pop these days of of fucking oneself and the listener up. It's really, it's got, it's got that kind of deep questioning aspect all the way along, even though there's also kind of an attempt to convey some spiritual contentment and, and some kind of reconciliation with his demons. It's not at all, you know, to go to the gym and run on the treadmill. Well, it's funny that you say treadmill, Carl, because one of my favorite lines is that little self-mocking line about when you ask what shape I'm in, I hope you're not talking about my abdomen. (laughs) I'm not sure what song that is, but for a former sex symbol who's sort of, you know, famous for being photographed with his marbled hard torso, it's it's, it's kind of fun to have a little self-deprecation thrown in rather than the kind of like hip hop swagger that we're used to hearing on these kind of records. Yeah, and I mean, th- that sort of texturedness and that sense of, you know, not knowing where one song begins and the other ends, even though there are big contrasts along the way, it's, there's a sense of this is an album qua album, you know, and I think that's one of the things about a surprise album drop that's exciting is is it kind of forces you to look at the album as an album because you haven't heard single after single kind of rolling out in advance. And we all just get this package, you know, on, in this case, almost literally Christmas morning <laughs> and open it up and shake it and turn it around and kind of see what's going on. And this album is so suited to that kind of treatment. What is up? With, can you give us like a micro history of the surprise album drop? Like the big one, obviously, was Beyonce's album at the end of last year. And it seems, if I'm like back of the enveloping it, like a strategy to combat music piracy and the kind of dissolution of albums entirely into a sea of singles. But like, who came up with it? And are we going to see more of it? And is it going to keep working? Or are we going to get bored of it when everybody does it? And what kind of artist does it work for? Yeah, I mean, the prehistory, I mean, you know, you probably with many things with digital releases go back to Radiohead and In Rainbows, that that kind of that kind of set the template that people have been experimenting with ever since. And so you've seen everything from like David Bowie doing his version of a comeback in that same kind of kept under wraps for ages kind of way and then suddenly surprising us and then through to to Beyonce and then, you know, this year the big misfire of you two attempting the same thing in this kind of weirdly passive aggressive way. <laughs> and so there's all the, there's all these changes that are being rung on that. And I think, yeah, part of it is a response to piracy, but I think it's getting richer now. You know, I, I really feel like with D'Angelo, 
this this is a particularly self-conscious version of that. And it reportedly was supposed to be sort of a more traditional album rollout later this year and was instead moved up into kind of trying to be of the moment, even though these songs were, you know, years old, but they seemed to speak to what was going on right then. So there's that kind of opportunity to to sort of seize a moment like that it doesn't really work for anybody but established artists right you know it there's not there's you can't have a surprise album from somebody nobody's ever heard of because that's just an album coming out and nobody noticing <laughs> and artists are at at the top of the game are more concerned about leaks and all of that kind of thing than anyone else is you know madonna sort of threw a fit when some of her demos for her new album were leaked out a few weeks ago and then rushed up the release of her album. So it's, it is playing that kind of cat and mouse game, but this is an example. And I think Beyonce was too, of how it can be used as kind of an artistic gesture beyond just a commercial one. I want to circle back around to that point about how the album aligned with the kind of national cultural moment and the idea of black music mattering along with the recurring theme of the black lives matter hashtag and the sort of natural national conversation around protests and police brutality. What's the musical context for this? I know we had Chris Melanfi on at the end of last year, beginning of this year, talking about the relative dearth of black music on the pop charts lately. Is this a response to that? Or is it is there something more deeply or directly connected to the politics of the moment? I think it's just that, you know, this the, the subject matter that's been in circulation this year because of those events is overlaps with music that with themes that that D'Angelo had been writing about and I think you know he was partly you know he comes from a gospel tradition and you know there are um there are samples on the album from Black Panther speeches and there's there's a, a general connection to sort of black liberation traditions in what he's doing and and lyrically he touches on some of those themes and I think it was just a sense that oh this is the moment where some of these songs should really be heard that happened and you know, D'Angelo and and his circle have always been the people who were more concerned about the tradition, more deeply enmeshed in sort of black ways of music making. And you know, jam was kind of an important part of his the aesthetic. This this is less of a jam album and more of a production album, but that kind of sense of players playing together is is really deeply involved. And the the, the touchstones are always things like Sly and the Family Stone and 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 key funk and so this kind of idea of you know funk is kind of uniquely suited to this idea of a collectivity because it's kind of everyone playing together individually at once it's that kind of sense of how the music is built and so it, it has a kind of inherent black politics in it in a way that a lot of um, black pop music doesn't tend to have and i think that that's part of what feels urgent about this sound right now Carl, is is D'Angelo going to tour with this album? And if so, how? It just seems so so layered and so produced that it's hard to imagine this this sound being produced live. Yeah, I mean, there is plans. There's a, this the second coming tour. I think it's the title of it um, has been announced for for later this year. Um, you know, he's a great great live performer. He's kind of a legendary live performer. And um, and if he can bring some of this, you know, this album is credited to a group, to the Vanguard, and that includes, you know partly people from the old Soulquarian team and then some new people around jazz trumpeter Roy Hargrove probably won't be on tour with him. Whether Questlove would be on tour with him. Pino Palladino, the bassist who's just incredible all over this record. I think that there's an ensemble that can be put together that will uh, put these songs across and it will probably be slightly of a different sound live than it is on record. But yeah, I, th- I think I think that these songs can be realized live. He's been playing some of them live for a few years now. All right, well, uh, Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about D'Angelo. It's an incredible, incredible record, and it was great to hear you uh, talk about why. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Will you stick around and endorse with us? I'd love to. All right, well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse. uh, Dana, what do you have? Uh, I think I'm going to endorse a a sort of white noise-esque site that I've been using to write with lately. So I go through different periods of trying to decide uh, whether to endure the horrific silence <laughs> of of the world while staring at a blank page or whether to try to substitute some sort of sound. But it has to be a very recessive sound. I can never write to music with lyrics in it, or I would just start typing out the lyrics. And uh, and preferably not something so hooky that you just want to give up and start dancing around the room. So sometimes I'll try to put on some version of white noise, or I used to sometimes listen to Indian classical music, sort of drone, background drone. <laughs> but then recently through... I would say that's like the most Dana thing. <laughs> 
What? I just, just it goes with like the Dana Gamelon bird song persona. <laughs> yeah, we all thought you just wrote to bird song, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> I realize that my musical taste is subject no, to I mockery. No, I love it. I love it. It's not mockery. It's it's just. But like, in a way, actually, ragas and that kind of music is sort of too good to listen to while typing as well, because that's just like great music, and then suddenly you're just listening to it. So I really am always just searching for that that music that disappears or sound that disappears. And somebody, whoever this was, thank you, suggested to me uh, this this site called rainycafe.com, which is exactly that. It has two different sort of controls. One is the sound of rain that you can turn up and down, and the other is this sort of background cafe sound that's sort of muted conversations and clinking silverware. (laughs) And you can mix them in different ways. And it essentially creates a background that makes you feel like you're in some sort of community and you're not just horrifically alone in your own head. Um, and I've been listening to rainycafe.com, so I recommend it. That sounds A, incredibly useful, and B, like a fictional detail from a like dystopic Gary Steingarten novel. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. Intern Joe is waving from the booth. Joe, pipe up. I have an interjection um, to promote myself. I have an essay on the all coming out either today or tomorrow about Rainy Cafe itself. And ra- <laughs> like ambient rain sound, or more generally, the art and culture of. But oh. you were not the person who told me about rainycafe.com. I came upon it independently, right? Um, okay. Fantastic. Could we knew? <laughs> go, go onto the all and read Josephine Livingston on rainycafe.com. Got, That's my endorsement now. You guys are making me reconsider. So we have a sound machine for my boys. And it has multiple options, one of which is a heartbeat, which is totally fucking grotesque. Uh, and whenever it goes on accidentally, I horrifiedly <laughs> move it away. Um, it's like Poe up in the nursery. <laughs> uh, and then, then there's ocean waves and rain. And I prefer the fake ocean to the fake rain, but maybe I'm doing it wrong. Also, there's no cafe option because I don't think my boys <laughs> know enough yet to be soothed by cafe clinking. But I'm going to read your essay and go to this site and reconsider whether I should use the rain button more yeah, than the rainycafe.com is it's essentially sort of like a baby white noise machine, but for writers. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Julia, what do you got? Uh, I'm reading a great birding memoir. And I can't tell... Oh, shall we all mock Julia's tastes now? Or is it only me? (laughs) Go ahead. Come (laughs) at me, lady. Come at me. (laughs) Chirp, chirp. Um, It's called Kingbird Highway, and it's by Ken Kaufman. And it's a memoir about the year he spent, 1973, pursuing a big year, trying to see as many bird species in North America as he could in one year. And he was going for the the national record. And um, it's... He was a kid at the time. He was in his teens. He dropped out of high school to do it with his parents' support, and he hitchhiked. He hitchhiked all over the country. And this set up various constraints. Some of the people he was competing against had jobs, so they had less time to do it with, but they also had money, so they could, like, fly to the special canyon in New Mexico that had some rare migrant from Mexico, whereas he had to get there via hitchhiking and encountering truckers and the life of the road. And it's just a really great piece of writing. It's great great on the birds themselves. He clearly delights in their markings and their behavior, and he's not just about adding names to a list. He's a really very good naturalist and description of um, kind of the behavior and character of these creatures and what sorts of feelings they stir in humans. He's a great anthropologist of birding culture and this kind of moment that it was at in the 70s where it was starting to get more competitive, but also starting to really develop as a culture and have national organizations and national newsletters and means of communication and and kind of an excitement about the collective endeavor of of North American birding. And then it's kind of great social criticism about American culture and this great portrait of an America you can hardly imagine existed, you know, only 40 years ago. Like, it's just such a different country. You know, some of it is really like, it helps to know birds a little bit. He goes on and on about like auklets. And if you don't know what kind of thing an auklet is, like, I think it helps to have that word call up an image in your mind, maybe, but it's really just a lovely piece of writing and a totally interesting slice of America. So Kingbird Highway by Ken Kaufman. Uh, that sounds cool. Uh, Carl, what do you have? Well, I thought I would um, carry on the theme a little bit of long-lost musicians. Um, over the Christmas holidays, I, I posted on Facebook that a friend and I had tried to uh, do a duet on the Pogue's Fairy Tale of New York when late one night, a little drunk, and... Uh, and that I couldn't get through it because it, it sort of caused me to break down. And it's a song that I, I'm like, oh, I can't really sing that. And um, 
in response, in the thread that came up, which was a lot of people talking about sort of the lost promise of Shea McGowan and his greatness as a songwriter um, in his heyday, a friend pointed out that there was actually a new Shane McGowan song last year, um, and it showed up in the context of the kids' movie How to Train Your Dragon 2. Um, and it's a song called For the Dancing and the Dreaming. And I went and looked it up, up on YouTube, and it's sung in this kind of comical duet by these by these cartoon characters. But it actually kind of conveys all that old Shane McGowan feeling that just like pulling something out of the tradition, out of out of you know centuries of thin air, and and suddenly this kind of indelible feeling melody and and lyrics emerging as though it's a song you've always known. Um, and I was just kind of startled to run across that in this context and, you know, as a non-parent not having heard. And um, and it really brought up that ache to imagine this great songwriter someday re-emerging D'Angelo-like and having sort of at least wrestled some of his demons and, and been able to bring us a full suite of music again. So that was kind of a melancholy but joyful feeling. You know that it's David Plotz's great dream or one of his great dreams to do a Pogues musical? <laughs> like a jukebox musical, he would take Pogue songs and turn them into a story. I honestly don't know that much more about it than than that, but he's like very animated by that idea. It's a, it's a great excitement. It is not what he chose to do after leaving Slate, but it could have been. All right. Well, um, inspired by I thought a peculiarly reductive and insulting portrait of Ruskin in the otherwise amazing Turner movie, I would recommend a great book by. Raymond Williams, one of the founding documents of culture studies, which should not be held against it. Um, But the book is called um, Culture and Society, and it has uh, a lot of stuff on Ruskin and Ruskin's importance. And to give people some sense of how he was not just a nattering fop, over-explanatory fop, what Williams points out is that he says an essential hypothesis in the development of the idea of culture is that the art of a period is closely and necessarily related to the generally prevalent quote-unquote way of life. And further, that in consequence, aesthetic, moral, and social judgments are closely interrelated. Such a hypothesis is now so generally accepted as a matter of intellectual habit that it's not always easy to remember that it is essentially a product of the intellectual history of the 19th century. And he goes on to explain that the key figure in England who made this connection, this kind of living connection between the way we actually live and the culture that we consume and care about was Ruskin. But Raymond Williams' Culture and Society is truly a masterpiece of culture studies and uh, and the notion, you know, the idea of, of, you know, how we conceive of culture, you know, in, in sort of a historical context. It's just an indispensable book, and I hope people still know it and care about it. All right. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks a lot, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Traveling at the speed of light and dim. At the same time I'm in the same spot too. Mm-hmm. Boom was kept in about the same way you left in. 